So I'm going to talk about Buddhist meditation and what the Buddha discovered and what he did. So you all know who the Buddha was. He was Siddhartha, and Siddhartha had a wife, and Siddhartha had a child. And then at the age of 29, Siddhartha left his child and left his wife in the care of his parents. And for six years, he practiced meditation and renunciation and asceticism. And at the age of 35, he achieved nirvana, the perfection that every human being has the potential to achieve. And one of the main practices that he had to get his nirvana was meditation. And meditation is all about the mind. So if you were to achieve nirvana today, your body doesn't change at all. But your mind glows and becomes perfect. So this is the cultivation of mind. We have some problems with the mind because the mind is predisposed to have greed, to have hatred, and to have delusion. And if you're watching the local news at any time, you see greed, hatred, and delusion. It's everywhere you look. And the idea with meditation is to change your greed into generosity, your hatred into kindness, and your delusion into wisdom and insight. And that's the potential we all have if we meditate to create that transformation. In Buddhism, we have two kinds of meditation. We have samatha meditation, which is called tranquility meditation. And we have vipassana meditation, which is insight meditation. Now, the Buddha rediscovered insight meditation. And the reason I use the word rediscovered is because the Buddha, our Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, is the 28th Buddha. There were 27 before him. And each one of them had discovered insight meditation. So the Buddha rediscovered it because it had been lost to the world. But he started to meditate with the yogis and mendicants of India. And they taught him how to do samatha meditation, tranquility meditation. And it's said, if you read the texts about the historical Buddha, that he surpassed all his teachers. He was so good at meditation. But he realized that there was something wrong with this form of meditation because it wasn't permanent. All the changes to your mind soon left, and you were back to where you started. So he said, there must be another way. There must be a kind of meditation. When I do it and I change something, it stays changed. It doesn't go back. It stays permanent in that way. So let's talk about samatha meditation first, the meditation that he learned from the yogis. And then we'll talk about insight meditation, vipassana, the one that he rediscovered. Samatha meditation is about one-pointedness, fixing your mind on the object of meditation. It said there were 40, four zero, different kinds of samatha meditation and four kinds of insight meditation. So one of the kinds that go both in the samatha category and the vipassana category is the observation of breath. So 
What we want to do, imagine yourself sitting on the floor in an uncomfortable position with legs crossed on a little cushion and your hands are resting on your lap and you bring the attention of your mind to the end of your nose. And all of a sudden you become aware of the sensation of breath going out and coming in, going out and coming in. It happens all day and all night, every day of your life. But most of us aren't aware of it because your mind is thinking about so many other things. This is the chance for us to come and sit and become aware of our breath, which is an amazing thing because if it leaves us for five or six minutes, we're dead. And in our whole life, it never left us for five or six minutes. It's always been there. It's our best friend. So here we are. We're sitting and we're sensation of breath going out and coming in going out and coming in. And now you realize that the sensation of breath is happening right now. It can't happen tomorrow. It can't happen yesterday. That sensation you're feeling is right now. That's your doorway into the present moment experience of your life. What's happening right now? Well, right now you're sitting in a chair in a classroom. But the chair is a concept. The classroom is a concept. The teacher is a concept. I'm a concept. It's not really happening the way you think it is, which is enough to freak anybody out. But that sensation of breath is happening just the way you think it is. It's a sensation. It's a present moment experience. It's bringing you home. Okay. When you concentrate long enough, you go into jhana, J-H-A-N-A. And there are four jhanas in this example. And the first jhana has five characteristics. So think of the jhanas as being different levels of tranquility. The first level of tranquility has five characteristics. Applied thought, sustained thought, happiness, bliss, and equanimity. Now, if you do jhana... On Google, you'll get all that stuff, and you can just copy and paste. But if you want to write, that's cool, too, because that's what I used to do. Five things, applied thought, sustained thought, happiness, bliss, and equanimity. When you focus long enough and concentrate long enough, you're training your mind to simply rest on the sensation of breath. You don't have to force it there. You don't have to keep it there. Now it simply stays there all by itself. That's when you get rid of applied thought and sustained thought. And you go into the second jhana. So the first jhana has five characteristics. The second jhana has three characteristics, which should tell you something about Buddhism. Buddhism is a path of renunciation. In Buddhism, we give stuff up. We don't gain anything. We have everything we're ever going to need right now. We have as much love and kindness as we'll ever need. We have as much wisdom as we'll ever need. We have as much generosity as we'll ever need. But the problem is, in front of the generosity is this greed. So we're trying to get rid of the greed and let the generosity spring forth. Cool. So we're giving stuff up in our meditation practice we give stuff up in our everyday life as a Buddhist as well. The bad stuff. So we only have left of the good stuff. 
So what do we have now in the second jhana? We have three characteristics. We have happiness, we have bliss, we have equanimity. Happiness is the mind, bliss is the body, equanimity is the mind. So we think about it and we say, well, you know what? I want to give up pleasure. Because if I give up pleasure, I can go into the third jhana. And, and pleasure is a bit easier to give up than happiness because happiness is sort of a mental state, and pleasure is sort of a physical state, and it, the physical is easier to deal with sometimes than the mental. But then we start to think about it, and we start to realize that we can't give up pleasure because we had nothing to do with it. We're hardwired. Certain things cause us pleasure, whether we want them to or not. Certain things cause us pain, whether we want them to or not. We're only one of the contributing factors, not all the factors. So with that being understood, we say to ourselves, I'm going to give up my attachment to pleasure. I'm going to let the pleasure arise all by itself, but I'm not going to attach to it. I'm not going to wish it lasts longer than it's supposed to. I'm not going to cling to it. I'm not going to hope it happens again. I'm just going to let it rise, exist, and pass away. And the same thing happens with pain. Pain is the other side of pleasure. So if you're able to give up your attachment to pleasure, you're able to give up your aversion to pain. And that's a big deal. Most people don't practice giving up their pleasure. Most people practice giving up their pain. Okay, so now you're sitting on the floor and you have this really sore knee, and it's only getting worse. And, and what the knee is telling you is this. If it hurts, it means you'll soon be dead. Literally. The knee is not very bright. And it says, I hurt, I know I'll be dead if you don't move your leg. And we're trained by pain to say, how can I get rid of pain? And then we say, I'll just move my leg, and I won't have pain anymore. Okay, so we move our leg, we don't have pain for five minutes, but then it comes back. We move our leg again, and it comes back again. So the meditator says, well, I'm just going to sit with it and see what happens. I'm going to see if it really is going to kill me, or if maybe it'll go away, if I just pay no attention to it. So the meditator sits there, and it doesn't necessarily doesn't go away, but it gets to be a little more manageable. It doesn't hurt quite as much. And then the gong rings, and meditation is over. And you go, wow, that wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. I was able to go in, sit quietly, have a little pain in the knee, and then leave and walk out and have no lasting consequences from having a sore knee. Okay, cool. So maybe I can apply that to the world around me. Because everything ultimately is about attachment and aversion. Happiness, sadness, pleasure, and pain. We live in a very dualistic world because we have a mind. And the mind is dualistic. The mind can't think about one thing. It needs two things in order to compare. Is this good or is this bad? Okay, so now we figured out how to give up the attachment to pleasure, the aversion to pain. We just sit with it. And now we go into the third jhana. The third jhana only has two characteristics. It has happiness, and it has equanimity. But we don't want to give up equanimity, because that's the goal 
of this meditation is to be equanimous, to have perfect balance, to accept the present moment exactly the way it is without wanting it to be any different. So in order to do that, we're going to have to give up our attachment to happiness and our aversion to unhappiness. So we figure that out. Can we be unhappy? Will unhappiness kill us? Will happiness make us live forever? And we see that it's just mind states arising, existing, and passing away. Generally speaking, because of certain thoughts or certain experiences, we become happy or we become unhappy. Now, if you've ever been to Disneyland, it's the happiest place on earth. And it only costs $100 for the whole day to be happy. But you know what happens at night? They close the gates. You've got to leave. You've got to leave the happiest place on earth. And what does that do to you? It makes you unhappy. Bummer. So there's happiness and unhappiness in everything we do because nothing stays the same for longer than a moment. Now you've realized that. You're able to let go of your attachment to happiness, your aversion to unhappiness, and you go into the fourth jhana. Equanimity, perfect balance of mind. Everything is exactly the way it's supposed to be. Choiceless awareness. Suzuki Roshi used to say, a famous Zen master. Choiceless awareness. Okay, it takes us there. We're now in this place of equanimity. We now look at our life. We don't want it to be any different than it is. We look at our hair. It's perfect just the way it's supposed to be. We look at our old car. What a wonderful car. It's just the way it's supposed to be. We look at all of our relationships, perfect relationships, just the way it's supposed to be. Fantastic. We made it there. But the problem with this kind of meditation is it only works while you're meditating. So you ring the gong. You have to leave the meditation hall. You go to your car, and you end up on the 405. No happiness there. No pleasure there. Man, all that equanimity, all that perfection that I saw in the world suddenly went away on the 405. The Buddha felt the same way. Before he was the Buddha, he was Siddhartha, he was doing this kind of meditation, and he said, there's something wrong with this kind of meditation because it's not permanent. It's only temporary. And I love the results, but it's only temporary, and I can't take it into the world. I want something I can take into the world. And that's when he rediscovered Vipassana, insight meditation, which permanently changes our consciousness. We never go back to how we used to be. Cool. That's called nirvana. That's the end result of insight meditation. The end result of samatha meditation is enlightenment. Now let me explain the difference according to me. Enlightenment is a Mahayana concept. You know about the Mahayana and the Theravada? Theravada was the original Buddhism. The Catholics are like Theravada. The Protestants are like Mahayana, the reform movement. Okay? They actually have two different goals. The goal of the Theravada is to achieve nirvana. The goal of the Mahayana is to achieve enlightenment. Let me give you my definition of enlightenment. Enlightenment is the direct personal experience of the interconnectedness and interdependence of all phenomena. Now that's a big sentence. It might be hard to understand the first time you hear it. 
the direct personal experience of the interconnectedness and interdependence of all phenomena, which is ultimate reality, according to Buddhism. So what does that mean? That means we're all connected to each other, no matter where we live, or what we do, or how we look. We're all connected, all the time. None of us are ever separate. The separateness comes from the ego, comes from the dualistic interpretation of the world we live in. That's how we think, that's how we understand. But that's not ultimate reality, that's relative reality. So the Mahayana Zen, perhaps, practitioner sits down to meditate and dissolves his personality or her personality into the universe. That the universe opens up its arms and embraces you and says, welcome home, we've missed you. But it only works for a certain amount of time until you become enlightened. And then the universe says you have to go back. You have to go back to your dualistic way of thinking because you can't eat a cheeseburger at the ultimate reality because there is no cheeseburger. You can't use the door at the ultimate reality because there is no door. Door is a relative concept. And learning how to use it is a relative skill, not an ultimate skill. You follow me so far? Make any sense at all? If this is the first time you've heard this, it probably sounds like gobbledygook, but this is the ultimate reality that you can find in enlightenment by practicing samatha meditation. Vipassana meditation is talking about nirvana. Nirvana is the end of suffering while you're alive, the end of karma while you're alive, and the end of all future rebirth. Now, how can that be? You know, in Buddhism, we have rebirth. You, you probably read about that. Different than reincarnation. Rebirth means that we don't have a soul. Reincarnation means you need a soul to be reborn. So what's being reborn if you don't have a soul? According to Buddhism, what's being reborn is your karmic energy. It travels with you lifetime to lifetime and helps to find you helps define you in every moment. When you end your karma, you can never be reborn again. And why would that be a good thing, not to be reborn? Because isn't life what it's all about? You know, everybody on the planet, except for a couple of monks and nuns, are having kids. And why are they having kids? To extend life. Their job is to keep life going. And the universe will never let you go. It's pushing you to have children. And then you have desire, and it's pulling you in. Desire and pushing, and all of a sudden, kids. Five, six, seven kids. The human race continues on and on and on. We have such a small, fragile planet here. We got seven billion. Seven billion. We're working on eight billion right now. And by the time you're ready to die, they're probably going to have nine billion living on this planet. Man, it is amazing. I'm blown away. I can't even imagine a planet with a million people. How lonely would we all get with just a million people? So the problem with rebirth is that in each birth, each lifetime, 
You have suffered the entire time. You have cried enough tears to fill the oceans of the planet. Really? Your parents have died. Your pets have died. Your best friends have died. You've died. And then you're reborn again. Your parents die. Your pets die. Your friends die. You die. And then you're reborn again. It keeps going on and on and on, all that suffering, all that loss. And there's nothing we can do about it until we achieve nirvana. And then we'll never have to be reborn again. But it's not non-existence, according to me. You know what happens when you achieve nirvana? You exist because of nirvana, not because of birth. Can you imagine that? If you could figure out a way to exist without being born you never have to die. Because everything that's born has to die. Everything that's born has to die. Everything that's created has to be destroyed. The greatest mountains, the biggest oceans, one day they won't be big. One day they'll be empty. But if you can figure out a way to exist without being born, you'll never die again. Nirvana. Okay. So how do you get there? Insight meditation. Vipassana meditation. Four kinds of insight. Mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of sensations, mindfulness of the mind, mindfulness of mental objects. I'm going to talk about mindfulness of sensations because that's the easiest one to understand. How many sensations do we have according to Buddhism? We have three. We have good sensations, we have bad sensations, we have neutral sensations. Most of the time we're not aware of the neutral sensations, they don't catch our attention, but we are aware mostly of the bad sensations and the good sensations. So we sit down on the floor and we start to scan our body, mentally scan our body. We take our attention and not put it on the nose and feel the sensation of breath, but put it on the top of the head and bring it down to the tip of your toes. So your attention is just going down, and all of a sudden there's a sensation, bad sensation. So you stop. My knee hurts. Man, does my knee hurt. That sensation catches you, and you go, wow, pain, unpleasant. Then you continue to scan. Then you get to your ankle. Oh, man, my ankle really hurts. Okay, unpleasant. Then you continue to scan, up and down, up and down, 25 minutes, 30 minutes. Then you think about all the sensations you became aware of in mind and body. And there are so many of them. And you say, well, were all of them good? No, not all of them. Were all of them bad? No, not all of them. Some were good and some were bad. You take that information and you reflect on it. And now you want to find the three aspects of Buddhist wisdom that will liberate you and make you free. They are anicca, dukkha, anatta. Impermanence, suffering, not self. Those are the three aspects of Buddhist wisdom that will make you free, make you liberated. Okay, so the first thing is impermanence. You look at all the sensations. Were all the sensations impermanent? Were any fixed? Were they any stayed the same? Or did they seem to have a vibratory nature? Some got worse, some got better, but they always changed. Some seemed to go away but then new ones would appear. You go, okay, okay. 
So I have to say that because of my observation of sensations of the body and sensations of the mind, that there is this thing called impermanence that applies to all of them. Nothing stays the same longer than a moment. And this is the most profound statement I'll make today. Everything happens for the first time. Everything happens for the first time. That's what comes out of impermanence. That we can never experience the same thing twice. You can't put the same foot in the same river twice. Because the water's moving and you're changing. It's a different foot, it's a different water. So everything you do, when you walk through that door today, you've probably done it Monday, last week, week before. The first time you ever walk through that door as you are today in this moment. You are unique right now. You have never existed in this way before. This is the first time. And you turn around, and now you're different again. You've never existed this way before. And now you go over here, and you've never existed this way before. How cool is that? How exciting would life be if everything you did was always the first time? Wouldn't that be challenging? Wouldn't it be exciting? What's going to happen now? I don't know. I've never done this before. You get into your car and you start the engine. You're going to pull out. This is the first time I've ever started the engine. Though I know how to do it because I've had similar experiences and there's been a similar person sitting in this seat before, but not the same person. So that's what comes out of the Nietzsche, of impermanence. We realize Everything changes, nothing lasts longer than a moment, and it's always the first time. Number two, suffering. Dukkha. Dis-ease, not content, unhappy, wishing things were different than they are. Because I know if I could just change a few things today, I'd have a perfect day. But I can't change those things today because I didn't make them. It took 10,000 things coming together in a unique, one-time way to make this moment happen. And it'll never happen again in this way. And I am simply one of the contributing factors that made this happen. But there are 9,999 other factors that also made this happen. That's why life is ultimately unsatisfactory, because I'm not in charge. If I was in charge, I'd make this world perfect. Whatever that means to you, I'd make it perfect. But I'm not in charge, and I can't, and there's 9,999 reasons why I can't. So what do I do? How do I accept the suffering of my life? How do I accept the discomfort of my life? That's the deal. That's where equanimity comes in. But we still have one more characteristic we need to define. And that third characteristic is called anatta. That is translated often as not-self. Not-self. I am not who I think I am. Never have been, never will be. Because there's nothing in me that defines me as an individual as an independent person, apart from conditions. 
I cannot stand alone because there's nothing to stand on and there's nothing to be. I am a process. I am not an event. Man, that is so disappointing. My mom told me I was somebody. She says, you're going to be somebody one day. I became a Buddhist and I became nobody. Man, what happened? So what is somebody? How do we get this unique personal experience called self or ego or personality? How does that happen? And we're the only animal on this planet that has this kind of ego and personality. And it seemed to start really young when we became separate for the first time. And that happened with mom, probably. All of a sudden, you and mom are the same. You're merged. There's oneness. And then one day, mom is over there, and you're over here. And you go, whoa, no, no. Not mom. And then one day, you notice you have a hand. You go, where did that come from? I never had a hand before. It was just me. And now it's me with a hand. And then I got a foot. And then I got a knee and an elbow. And I'm going, wow, I'm just coming into thousands of pieces. I used to be one with everything. And now I'm becoming more separate and more separate. And it's a little bit lonely to be separate from everything all the time. And then mom takes us to school for the first time and says, you need to learn how to be separate. And this is going to help you. Because every word you learn, every concept you understand, will make you more and more separate. So we learn about the chair and the door and the table. And we are not the chair and we are not the door and we are not the table. But we have a concept of those and we can use those to manipulate our world and change things, and change things. But we can't change things if they're us. We have to be separate from them in order for them to change. So we got the door. Guy just came in. He came in because he knew what a door was, and he, he knew what an entrance and exit was. He had these concepts. So he got the handle of the door and opened it up and didn't think anything about it. He'd done it a thousand times. But what if you were the door? What if you were one with the door? And you couldn't use it because you didn't know how it worked because it wasn't separate from you. You would never leave this room. How depressing is that? Whoa. So every time we learn a new word or a new concept, it makes us more and more separate. And sometimes we're separate in 10,000, 50,000 ways, depending on how big our vocabulary is. So we are not a self. We are a process that pretends to be a self. And we have a costume and we have an identity. And that identity is something that's been created. We weren't born with it. And it's ever-changing. When you're 10, you're somebody else. When you're 20, you're somebody else. When you're 30, you're somebody else. When you're 50, you're somebody else. You're always turning into somebody else all the time. One day you don't know how to do football, the next day you do. One day you don't know how to do soccer, the next day you do. So now you're the soccer person or the football person. You didn't know how to drive a car, now you can. Wow, we're always changing, turning into somebody else, never the same, longer than a moment, and not in charge. 
once you get those three concepts down, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not self, you start to see that you can be free. You can be free from all the concepts that define you. And once you're defined, once somebody says who you are, you're limited. It takes a long time to break out of that. But if they can't define you, if they don't know what or who you are, you can be anybody you want to be. Anybody. What kind of freedom is that? That is fantastic. <laughs>